Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Our speaker this evening is our own founding executive director of the Institute of Catholic Culture, who many of you know. Father Hezekiah Carnazzo graduated from Christendom College in 2004 and completed a master's degree in systematic theology with an advanced apostolic catechetical diploma at Christendom's graduate school. In 2009, Father Hezekiah founded the Institute of Catholic Culture and has since served as its executive director. Ordained to the priesthood in 2016, he also serves as the director of the Office of Catechesis and Evangelization for the Melkite Greek Catholic Eparchy of Newton. Father Hezekiah has lectured throughout the U.S., is a regular guest on the Sunrise Morning Show, and has appeared on EWTN's Sunday Night Live and Marcus Grody's Coming Home Network. He serves as pastor of St. George Melkite Greek Catholic Church in Sacramento, California, where he lives with his wife, Linda, and their seven children. Please welcome Father Hezekiah. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. Thank you to Peter and Cecilia and all of you for joining us this evening as we get prepared for the journey which is ahead. And to do that, let's begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Adam was cast out of paradise through eating of the tree. Seated before the gates, he wept, lamenting with a pitiful voice and saying, Woe is me. What have I suffered in my misery? I transgressed one commandment of the master, and now I am deprived of every blessing. O most holy paradise planted for my sake and shut because of Eve, Pray to him that made thee and fashioned me, that once more I may take pleasure in thy flowers. Then the Savior said to him, I desire not the loss of the creature which I fashioned, but that he should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And when he comes to me, I will not cast him out. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Welcome all of you. It's a rather unusual circumstance that I find myself on this side of the Zoom screen instead of on the other one. I guess there's sides to a Zoom screen, but a blessing to be with all of you. And thank you again, Peter and Cecilia and Katie for taking care of all the details while I was putting last minute touches on our time together tonight. Plan to share with you some thoughts about our journey, which is ahead, about packing our bags as the title is the title for this presentation is presented to you. Lent is a journey. Lent is a journey. And as such, we have to get ourselves ready for that journey. I'm going to be using tonight two texts, which I regularly refer back to that, uh, you know, Alden was mentioning all these great soul winning fathers of the church and saints and, and beautiful insights of the great saints. But I I tend to go back to two 
modern sources. I know that's a very unusual thing for you to hear from Father Hezekiah, going back to modern sources. At the beginning of Lent, because of their pastoral nature. And those two texts are Father Alexander Schmemann's book, Great Lent, his subtitled Journey to Pascha. And the other is an introduction to a liturgical book known as the Triodian, which is the primary book which we chant from during the Lenten season in the Byzantine tradition. And this particular edition, which I just shared with you, one of the beautiful hymns chanted this past Saturday in the church, was assembled by and edited by Bishop Callistos Ware. And so I'm going to be mentioning the good Bishop Callistos Ware, as well as Father Alexander Schmemann throughout my presentation this evening, but I want you to know at the, at the outset that I'm not, whatever I say tonight, I'm simply ripping off from these guys because you really don't need to, to learn from Father Hezekiah. You really should be learning from people that are, you know, have some experience of, of the spiritual life much more deeply than I do. And these are guys I go back to time and time again, year after year and reread because there's always more to mine from their insights. And so again, much of what I'll be sharing with you, whether I say it's from Father Alexander Schwayman or Callistus Ware or whatever the case may be, you can be promised that pretty much it's just them talking and I'm just putting them together, you know, for you so that we can spend some valuable time. We'll spend like just under an hour and then have some time for discussion also. I'm certainly going to challenge you this evening, but don't worry, there will be an end to this because I have a church service behind that wall in our church, not too far after the top of the hour. So I can't go on too long. So there's a, you know, there's a limit to uh, to the abuse, which I must heap upon you this evening. Let's begin, let's begin with a quotation from a Serbian bishop, Nikolai of Okrid, who lived in the about the 1930s, describing his experience of Pascha, of Easter, in Jerusalem. He says this, We waited, and at last our expectations were fulfilled. When the patriarch said, Christ is risen, a heavy burden fell from our souls. We felt as if we also had been raised from the dead. All at once, from all around, the same cry resounded like the noise of many waters. Christ is risen, saying the Greeks, the Russians, the Arabs, the Serbs, the Copts, the Armenians, the Ethiopians, one after another, each in his own tongue, in his own melody. Coming out from the service at dawn, we began to regard everything in the light of the glory of Christ's resurrection, and all appeared different from that. It, as it had the yesterday, everything seemed better, more expressive, more glorious. Only in the light of the resurrection does life receive its meaning. And sadly today, I believe that this type of transformation, which Bishop Nikolai describes, is for the most part unknown. It is not experienced. And I would say the primary reason for that, although we will be covering quite a few reasons tonight, the primary reason is a lack of expectation, a lack of a sense of knowing where we are going, and then an expectation that we are going to arrive there. Father Joseph Francovilla, who is my mentor, used to repeat this phrase many times, where there is no expectation, there will be no fulfillment. And notice, notice Bishop Nikolai's first first sentence we waited and at last our expectations were fulfilled if we do nothing else this evening icc family 
If we do nothing else this evening, I hope to cultivate this sense of expectation. A journey can only be successful if there is a goal. And we know that goal, that end of that journey. And Lent is certainly no different than that. We need to understand and constantly keep in front, the forefront of our mind, the goal of Lent. It is, of course, the shining light of the resurrection, which urges us on, which determines every aspect of how we are to live over the coming 40 days. And without this, without this guiding light of the resurrection, I dare say we will be lost and Lent will become something entirely other than what it is supposed to be. If, of course, if it is to be something at all. Father Schmemann says this, since Lent is in no way reflected in the culture in which we belong, it is no wonder then that, that today, that our experience today is mainly a negative understanding of Lent. As a season when certain different things, such as meat and fats and dancing and entertainment are forbidden. The popular question, what are you giving up for Lent, is a good summary of the common negative approach. In positive terms, Lent is viewed as a time when we must fulfill our annual obligation of confession and communion. And this obligation having been fulfilled, he says, the rest of Lent seems to lose all positive meaning. Of course, Father Alexander Schmemann, living only a few decades ago, already sounds like he's living in a bygone era. Today, the situation has developed, or I should say, devolved even further. And even for those, hello, ICC people, for those of us who are trying to take uh, Lent more seriously, to take our faith more seriously, there is this tendency to, to make two serious errors about how we approach Lent. The first one is a tendency to overemphasize external rules about food in a legalistic way. Okay? But that's not the only error. And I dare say it is not the most dangerous one. The second one is the tendency to scorn. This is the opposite now, to scorn the Lenten rules of the church as outdated and unnecessary, seeking to pursue a more spiritual approach to Lent. And both of these, Bishop Callisto Swear warns, are serious errors, which will lead eventually to the betrayal of our faith. For as Ware explains, there is in our society and in certain Christian circles, a heretical attitude about man, about our human nature. He calls it a false spiritualism, which rejects or ignores the body, viewing man solely in terms of his reasoning faculty. And as a result, many contemporary Christians have lost a true vision of man as an integral unity of both visible and invisible, yes, body and soul, neglecting, in this case, neglecting the positive role played by the body 
in our spiritual life. We've all heard this, yes? What, what really matters in Lent is not those kind of old-timey rules about fasting and doing these things. No, what really matters in Lent, Catholics, is being nice to people. Yes, we've heard this ad nauseum. I grew up with it in Catholic schools or so-called Catholic schools. But my brothers and sisters, this is a serious error which we must correct. Okay, we're going to begin. Let's go to, let's go to the scriptures, to 1 Corinthians. Very quickly, I've got a couple passages to share with you this evening. If you came tonight without a Bible, shame on you. If you're new to the ICC, never come to the Institute without a Bible. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Here we go. Chapter 6, verse... Do you hear when your eyes start to go bad? Oh, yeah. Verse 19. I've got it. Verse 19. Teresa, you're right there. Come on. Take yourself off of mute. There we go. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been purchased at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. There you go. So you're, we have to be aware of this, this reality, you guys, that there, is, there can be no, no fundamental divide between the body and the soul. And much of what we do as Catholics during Lent is to regain this sense of our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit. As, as Callistos Ware says, man is a unity of body and soul, a living creature fashioned from nature's both visible and invisible. Yes. And if you find yourself like Mora, agreeing wholeheartedly to this point, yes, you're on board. We have to take Lent seriously. We have to take the physical exercises of Lent as spiritual realities. Okay. If you're there, I want to also warn you of the other tendency to over emphasize the external rules about food in a legalistic way, reducing our Lenten observances to obligations, which must be fulfilled rather than a season which we are invited to enter into. Now, I have more about to say about that, I'm sure, in our question answer time together. But for now, I'm going to move on. Because today in the West, the Lenten fast, the Lenten observances have been reduced in many places to certain minimal obligations. And then peppered, if you will, or salted, sprinkled with certain yeah, more or less amusing Lenten customs, okay? St. Patrick's Day is one of those, right? When it's just a thing we do during Lent, okay? And I was literally, I was reading. It's again, it's come, it's come full circle now in my life, in which St. Patrick's Day unfortunately falls on a Friday, and therefore I have to endure ad nauseum the fundamental question which we as Catholics must ask ourselves here at the outset. And that is whether we are required to fast on St. Patrick's Day. And in answer to that, of course, our spiritual leaders, many across the country, calm the nerves of the Catholic faithful and 
inform us that you are no longer obliged to keep the fast on Friday during St. Patrick's Day because even though St. Patrick's life was known for nothing less than the most serious asceticism, we are going to celebrate that by over-drinking, overeating, and throwing massive parties in his celebration. Massive parties, by the way, which are only known in America and totally unknown in, in, in Ireland until, well, maybe recently when Ireland is thrown off off the faith completely or almost completely. It's an American thing. Okay. And this is what gets us excited in which we read articles and articles about, about this point. Okay. Now this is unfortunately what Lent has become for many and far, far from this approach is of course the traditional Catholic approach to Lent as a time of serious spiritual exercise. And that's the purpose of our evening together tonight, to regain our understanding of that tradition and refocus our understanding, our vision of Lent, and our Christian sense of expectation, okay? Our hope that's going to nourish us over the coming weeks. Now, let me say here at the outset that fasting Refraining from certain foods and certain amounts of foods at certain times has always, always stood at the very center of Lent for Christians. And thus, we need to begin here if we are going to take seriously our discussion this evening to attempt in our limited time to regain an understanding of the Lenten fast. Callisto Swearer says the primary aim of fasting is to make us conscious of our dependence on God. I cannot stress enough how important that is. I see Therese and a few others taking notes. If you're writing it down, I'm going to say that again for you because I do believe it should stand at the forefront of, of what we're talking about. The primary aim of fasting is to make us conscious of our dependence on God. Many people today fast. Hmm? As Schmemann observes, fasting exists in other religions and even outside of religions. Some people fast even for political reasons. Yeah. People fast really for, for many, many reasons, including just losing weight or being healthy in your body. It's important then to discern the unique, the uniquely Christian content of fasting. For it was in the beginning that our Heavenly Father placed the first fast upon our first parents in the Garden of Eden. Pull out your Bibles. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 15. You got it there? John? Maura, you got it? Okay. Lucille? All right. All right, John, uh, Genesis chapter two, verse 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden to till and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, please notice that God did not say that the tree was bad. For we know from Genesis chapter 1, I shouldn't have closed my Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and God saw 
everything that he made and behold, it was very good. Yeah. The tree of knowledge of the good and evil was not bad. In fact, it was very good. The fathers of the church tell us that the tree of knowledge of good and evil was a gift from God. That if they had exercised their free will properly in obedience to the Father, then God would have given them access to the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then ultimately to the tree of life. I've used that example before of a mother putting the cookies in the oven and telling her child, don't touch it. Right. Because if you I don't want you to be burned. Right. And this is this is how we should be reading this text of Genesis. God made everything good for us. But everything must be received in its proper order, lest it become something bad for us. Yeah. And this is the nature of the tree of knowledge of evil upon which God placed that first fast. And sadly, sadly. Apart from the communion which God had placed in the created things in paradise, apart from this communion, we did not find life but but death. And Adam found himself in sin and discovered not the life that the evil one tempted us with, but rather with death. And it is for this reason that Christ, the new Adam, as his first act following his baptism, entered into a fast. And there, like Adam at the beginning, he met the devil. The only difference was the result of that meeting. Let me share with you now an extended quotation from Father Alexander Schmemann. It is just about three pages long but I do believe it is worth our attention. So sit back, grab grab your glass of water, or see, in the Byzantine tradition, we've already entered into Lent last night. So here's water. No wine for Father Hezekiah, but for all of you Catholics out there, well, you can pour yourself a glass of wine if you want, but listen to Father Alexander Schmemann. He uh, is certainly worth our attention. Sin is not only the transgression of a rule leading to punishment, It is always a mutilation of life given to us by God. It is for this reason that the story of the original sin is presented to us as an act of eating. For food is means of life. It is that which keeps us alive. But here lies the whole question. What does it mean to be alive? And what does life mean? For us today, this term has a primarily biological meaning. Life is precisely that which entirely depends on food and more generally on the physical world. But for the Holy Scriptures and for Christian tradition, this life by bread alone is identified with death because it is mortal life, because death is a principle always at work in it. God, we are told, created no death. He is the giver of life. How then did life become mortal? Why is death and death alone the only absolute condition of that which exists? The church answers because man rejected life as it was offered and given to him by God and preferred a life depending not on God alone, but on bread alone. Not only did he disobey God for which he was punished, he changed the very relationship between himself and the world. 
to be sure the world was given to him by God as food, as a means of life. Yet life was meant to be communion with God. It had not only its end, but its full content in him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The world and food were thus created as means of communion with God. And only if accepted for God's sake were to give life. In itself, food has no life and cannot give life. Only God has life in his life. In food itself, God and not calories was the principle of life. Thus to eat, to be alive, to know God and be in communion with him were one and the same thing. The unfathomable tragedy of Adam is that he ate for its own sake. More than that, he ate apart from God in order to be independent of him. And if he did it, it is because he believed that food had life in itself and that he, by partaking of that food, would be like God. He would have life in himself. To put it very simply, he believed in food, whereas the only object of belief of faith is dependence is God and God alone. The world and food became his gods the sources and principles of his life. He became their slave. Adam in Hebrew means man. It is my name, our common name. Man is still Adam, still the slave of food. He may claim that he believes in God, but God is not his life, his food, the all-embracing content of his existence. He may claim he receives his life from God, but he doesn't live in God and for God. His science, his experience, his self-consciousness are all built on that same principle, by bread alone. We eat in order to be alive, but we are not alive in God. This is the sin of all sins. This is the verdict of death pronounced on our life. Christ is the new Adam. He comes to repair the damage inflicted on life by Adam, to restore man to true life. Thus, he also begins with fasting. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. Hunger is that state in which we realize our dependence on something else. When we urgently and essentially need food, showing thus that we have no life in ourselves. It is that limit beyond which I either die from starvation or having satisfied my body have again the impression of being alive. It is, in other words, the time when we face the ultimate question on what does life depend? And since the question is not an academic one, but is felt with my entire body, it is also the time of temptation. Satan came to Adam in paradise. He came to Christ in the desert and he came to two hungry men and said, eat for your hunger is the proof that you depend entirely on food, that your life is in food. And Adam believed and ate, but Christ rejected that temptation and said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by God. He refused to accept that cosmic lie which Satan imposed on the world, making that lie a self-evident truth not even debated anymore. The foundation of our entire worldview of science, medicine, and perhaps even religion. By doing this, Christ restored that relationship between food, life, and God, which Adam broke and which we still break every day. 
What then is fasting for us Christians? It is our entrance and participation into that experience of Christ himself, by which he liberates us from the total dependence on food, matter, and the world. By no means is our liberation a full one, living still in the fallen world, in the world of the old Adam being part of it, we still depend on food. But just as our death, through which we still must pass, has become, by virtue of Christ's death, a passage into life, the food we eat and the life it sustains can be life in God and for God. Part of our food has already become food of immortality, the body and blood of Christ himself. But even the daily bread we receive from God can be in this life and in this world that which strengthens us, our communion with God, rather than that which separates us from God. Yet it is only fasting that can perform that transfer that transformation, giving us the existential proof that our dependence on food and matter is not total, it is not absolute, that united to prayer, grace, and adoration, it can itself be spiritual. All this means that deeply understood fasting is the only means by which man recovers his true spiritual nature. It is not a theoretical, but truly a practical challenge to the great liar who managed to convince us that we depend on bread alone and built all human knowledge, science, and existence on that lie. Fasting is a denunciation of that lie and also the proof that it is a lie. It is highly significant that it was while fasting that Christ Christ met Satan, and then he later and that and, and he said later that Satan cannot be overcome by but by prayer and fasting. Fasting is a real fight against the devil because it, it is the challenge to that one all-embracing law which makes him the prince of this world. Yet if one yet if one is hungry and then discovers that he can truly be independent of that hungry hunger not be destroyed by it, but just on the contrary can transform it into a source of spiritual power and victory, then nothing remains of that great lie in which we have been living since the fall of Adam. Thus the short but so important sentence I shared with you from Clistus Ware at the earlier. The primary aim of fasting is to make us conscious of our dependence on God. And more than simply awareness, Schmemann explains that it is our entrance and participation in that experience of Christ himself, by which he liberates us from the total dependence on food, matter, and the world. As I said toward the beginning, fasting stands at the very center of what Lent is all about. Father Alexander says it is only fasting that can perform that transformation. It is only in fasting. It is the denunciation of that lie of the serpent and also proof that it is a lie. Ultimately, for Schmemann, to fast means only one thing, to be hungry to go to the limit of that human condition which depends entirely on food and being hungry, to discover that this dependence is not the whole truth about man, that hunger itself is first of all a spiritual state, and that it is in its last reality a hunger for God. Obviously, to undertake such 
a spiritual exercise, there needs to be serious preparation, asking God for help and making our fast God-centered. And you know, in the more ancient tradition of the church, there were weeks and weeks of preparation for Lent, a slowly easing into Lent to ensure that God remains in the center of everything that we are doing. We have to be careful, first of all, that we do not fall into the heresy of Pelagianism, that I am somehow going to be strong enough to conquer my passions, that I'm going to somehow conquer heaven by the strength of my own will. I oftentimes remind my parishioners that Lent is not a time to discover our strength over our passions. It is a time to discover our inability to conquer our passions. And then, having discovered our inability to turn to the only one that can help us. Schmemann reminds us that we must rediscover our bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit and regain a religious respect for the body for food, and for the very rhythm of life. And that rhythm of life is stamped with, it is given its its telos, its end, uh, its goal, by a constant awareness and expectation of the coming of Christ. Over the past few weeks, I've talked with you guys a couple of times in our pre-class discussions about setting up your prayer spot facing toward the east, huh? In expectation of the coming of Christ, how important that is. Living in expectation. And then turning, as I said, to the only one who can strengthen us. It is the tradition of the church to increase our communion with our Eucharistic Lord during this time. That old Latin word for communion, which is given to the dying, viaticum is that which all of us ought to be receiving in these days which lie ahead. For no one will rise from the dead who has not first died with Christ. We receive then the Eucharist more earnestly, with greater desire and greater devotion and greater frequency, that receiving the communion like the manna that Israel received in the desert, we will be strengthened on the 40-day journey which lies ahead. And of course, if fasting enticed the devil in the garden and it enticed the devil in the desert, we should expect the same. I don't think I've ever experienced a Lent in which I took that Lenten time seriously that the evil one did not come strongly trying to destroy my soul and those around me. Certainly, if we take the fast seriously, it will lead to temptation. It will expose our weakness. It will cause us to doubt. It will make Father Hezekiah very irritable. Yeah? We've all been watching the news of the horrific earthquake in Syria. My brothers and sisters... That earthquake is a result of the fall, and there is a constant earthquake of a greater nature taking place in our souls. And to reallocate, to put it back together, it's going to hurt, it's going to be difficult, 
it's going to be painful. As Father Alexander notes, too many people start the fast with great enthusiasm, right? We're going to do this. We're going to be serious about it this year. But when the first real contest comes, and it will come for those that are serious about it, then we tend to give up. We cannot let this happen. Despair, despair is the trick of the evil one to make you think that it is not possible for God to bring healing to your soul. You must make a serious commitment if you are to engage in a serious fast, that when you find yourselves on your bloody knees, you will not lose hope in sight of the resurrection. When we fail to turn to prayer, to get up, to dust ourselves off, and to grab hold of the hand of Christ. I want to also offer a little warning. We are going to talk certainly about some practicals here in a few minutes. A little warning to enter into the fast little by little. To enter into the season of Lent little by little. Rather than jumping off the high dive and doing a header into the concrete on the edge of the pool. Yes. No, we don't want to do that. No. So to enter in little by little. But if we take it seriously, we will be hungry. We will be tired. We will be exhausted. And no doubt we will be irritable and on edge. The purpose of the fast, as Ware explains, is to lead us in turn to a sense of inward brokenness and contrition. And discover once again, Jesus' teaching in John chapter 15, without me, you can do nothing. My brothers and sisters, there is a positive view. I can see more I want to turn there. I'm going to just give you the passage, John 15, verse 4. But there's a positive aspect here too. A real fasting leads to a sense of lightness, a sense of wakefulness, an attentiveness, a sense of freedom, and even a, tense, a sense of joy. Callistos wears his fasting liberates our bodies from the burden of excessive weight and makes it a willing partner in the task of prayer, alert, responsive to the voice of the Spirit. And in this, we begin to see more clearly, and thus the spiritual nature of fasting. We begin with food, but this is just the beginning of our physical hunger, which is meant to lead to a spiritual hunger. And eyes the eyes of our soul begin to see reality as it truly is, which is another reason why we face major challenges when we fast, because we begin to see the reality of our soul. I, I can see it's kind of like water starting to simmer and our sins start to come right up in front of our face. St. John Chrysostom says, fasting is the change of every part of our life because the sacrifice of the fast is not the abstinence from food, but the distancing from sin. In other words, not only should our mouth fast, but the eyes and legs and arms and all their parts of the body should fast as well. Let the hands fast, remaining clean from stealing and greediness. Let the legs fast, avoiding roads which lead to sinful sights. Let the eyes fast from not fixing themselves on beautiful faces or by not observing others in such a way. Of course, fasting alone is of absolutely no use without prayer. 
Because it is only by the grace of God that we will be able to do anything. Remember the story of the demoniac whose father goes to Jesus frustrated, right? Because why? Because the disciples could not bring healing to his son. And Jesus says very clearly, when his disciples asked why they could not drive out the demon, says this kind can only be driven out through prayer and fasting. Notice when St. Paul is about to head out to his first missionary journey. Open your, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Go fast, guys. Acts chapter 13, verse 3. You with me? Shane, you got it? Gina? Yeah? Okay, there you go. Acts 13, 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Yes? Chapter 14, verse 23. Same. Similar, similar situation. 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believe. This pattern of prayer and fasting is throughout sacred scripture. That fasting ultimately leads us to an encounter with the Lord. And every time this fast is undertaken in scripture, the results are the same. Moses on Mount Sinai for 40 days. You want to write down the references. We're not going to go there. Exodus chapter 34, verse 28. He says, Moses fasted. Exodus 34, 28. And then, and then of course, he beholds the face of God. Elijah on Mount Horeb. First Kings chapter 19, verse 8. I'm not turning there. First Kings chapter 19, verse 8. Elijah fasts 40 days, finds himself on Mount Sinai. And there he hears the voice of God. Peter in Cornelius's house was fasting. Yes, it says he became hungry. And it's only there in his hunger that he began to have a vision of God. The connection is always the same in scripture. And so our fast is always aimed at encounter with God to draw near as, as Callisto Swear says, to draw near to the mountain of prayer. And of course, Jesus teaches us that prayer and fasting must always be accompanied by almsgiving. It is the restoration of our proper relationship with the other. Yeah, almsgiving is a form of love to those who are in need. Of course, everyone around us is in need. Yeah, in the in the in the Orthodox tradition, the Byzantine tradition, the first. The, the, the night before, well, this was last night in our church, we celebrate at the gateway of Lent as we enter into the Lenten season, forgiveness vespers. Forgiveness is a form of almsgiving. Yeah, in our tradition, we make a prostration to every single person in the church, priest, people, everybody, and asking them for, for forgiveness. Father, brother, sister, forgive me for I am a sinner, to which we respond, it is God who forgives us. We embrace each other and move to the next person in the church. Forgiveness is the gateway to great Lent because forgiveness is the necessary foundation for a relationship with God. How can you say you love God who you do not see and hate your neighbor who you do? John tells us in his epistle, it is not possible. Therefore, we begin with almsgiving, and I encourage you, my brothers and sisters, to take an account of your life. Maybe it's a brother, maybe a sister, maybe it's a neighbor, or your boss, maybe it's your spouse, that over time you've allowed division to enter into that relationship of brokenness, 
a divorce, yeah, and to bring about healing in that matter. And I'll tell you, forgiveness is not forgetfulness. No, forgiveness is not forgetfulness. Forgiveness is a change of my attitude and perception of my brother who is in need. Yeah, the desire that they be restored in the image and likeness of God, a prayer for them, a fasting for them, that God will bring about in their life that they are to be made in the image and likeness of God. They become everything which they intended were intended to be. This is the foundation of forgiveness and ultimately is the foundation of almsgiving. But the fathers call us to make this love practical. Yeah, the shepherd of Hermas. A very early church text says this about the fast. On the day in which you fast, fulfilling what is commanded. This is like first, second century, guys. So, you know, people that say we shouldn't, don't need to fast. I'm sorry. 2,000 years. This 2,000 years is what the church has been teaching. On the day in which you fast, fulfilling what is commanded, having reckoned the price of the dishes on that day which you intended to have eaten, give it to the widow or the orphan or the person in need. And thus you will show humility of spirit. I remember we did this for a few years in my family. We should bring back the practice that we would, during our Lenten meals, we would add up all of those things that we were not eating. And we would put that money intentionally into a jar. And at the end of Lent, we would take that money and physically give it to somebody in need. What, a, uh, what an example that was to my small children. I think it is a good example for all of us uh, to take. Father Schmemann talks about Lent as a time of bright sadness and, and Callistus where of joy creating sorrow. I'm reminded of the story of the prodigal son who found himself far from his father's house. And at that moment, the tears which must have come down his face, remembering everything that he had thrown away. But then also in that moment, remembering the brightness and joy of his father's house and getting up and beginning that journey back to him. This is a time of bright sadness, of joy creating sorrow. But for us, to whom the resurrection has been revealed, there is certainly a joy through sorrow. For the resurrection will only come to us through the cross to those who are willing to die to themselves, that we might regain the life which God has intended for us from the beginning. And there's a beautiful Byzantine prayer that is sung in the church this Wednesday. It says this, Grant me tears, falling as the rain from heaven, O Christ, as I keep this joyful day of the fast. The springtime of the fast has dawned, the flower of repentance has begun to open. O oh, brethren, let us cleanse ourselves from all impurity and sing to the giver of light. Glory to thee who alone lovest mankind. I return for just a moment here as we conclude our time together to this idea of the inherent goodness of creation. God saw that it was good. For when we fast, we do not reject the created order. It is all good, very good, but rather we sanctify it and place it once again in its proper place. We return it to its source of life and assert, as where explains, its potential of being spirit-bearing, 
the potential of the created order as bearing the life of God. And those who fast, he says, so far from repudiating material things, are on the contrary assisting in their redemption. Now, let me talk for a moment about some some practicals, about a Lenten style of life, if you will. And then we're going to open up to Q&A and have a little bit of a discussion. And I'm going to go very quickly through this. You can write these down if you want, just to throw some things out there to you. Far from what I began with was uh, regarding kind of a minimalist approach to the fast, I would I would recommend a maximalist approach of taking an account of your whole life and asking yourself where you become accustomed to certain things which have taken a priority in your life that are out of place. You know, I was thinking this this weekend as I was in the church that our life has kind of become like a pyramid in which a reverse pyramid in which all those things which are of lesser importance have become at the top for us. And so our life is crowded because there's a lot there. Instead of its proper way of the triangle in which there's really only a few things, really only one thing that is needful. And all other things and all those busyness of the world in their proper relationship to that which is most important. Our Lenten time is a time to reorganize that triangle, if you will. So time. Time is a gift from God. It has become cluttered. And if we are going to kind of restore a Lenten style of life in these days ahead, we have to make time. Time for prayer. It's going to require a a bit of a change in our schedule, our daily schedule. I would encourage those that are in the kind of work-a-day world to really take a look at your life. We can become very much addicted to work, as I regularly do. It's a time to say, wait a minute. There needs to be a priority and a relationship here that is proper. And, and even now, if you have a, a job out in the secular world, now is the time to put in your time for the triduum, for to, to some, taking some time off during Lent. I, I'm serious about that. A Christian should certainly never work on, on Good Friday. Let's just say that right off the bat. And if you have a job that requires you to work on Good Friday, quit your job. As simple as that. Yeah. But put in now your time off, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of Holy Week. And encourage you to consider, we were talking about all these prayer books, all these spiritual books, and that those are all wonderful. But you know, there's one book that has stood the test of time, the Psalter. Yeah, the Psalms. Yeah, in which the church prays morning prayer and evening prayer, which is basically the Bible put into a prayer book. And I would encourage you to consider praying the office. Begin with morning prayer and evening prayer as it is regulated by the church as given to us as a gift. Those Psalms, she says, pray these Psalms now at these proper times. Yeah. What about the atmosphere in our homes? I'm going to begin with my hobby horse, which is television. You know, your father has a kind I can't fast from food because I'm too old. Well, first of all, you know what? Your grandmother fasted and she lived to 110. Yeah. So, but regardless of that, if you can't fast from food, I never heard of anybody dying from fasting from television. Never heard about it. Oh, but father, I don't watch television. You're a liar. You do watch television. Oh, but father, it's just EWTN. Well, maybe it's time to just back off a little bit from the constant noise. It's constant. 
and we need to back off from it. And that includes the internet. I'm just going to go throw in the ICC because, you know, it looks good when the ICC stands next to EWTN, right? So I'm telling you to back off of EWTN. I'm going to tell you right now, be careful. There's a lot of opportunities for, for online education, for all like that. Just be careful. Regulate it. If you're going to be watching EWTN, let's just back off a little bit. Let's bring that time back so you have some space and time in your home. If you're doing five Institute of Catholic Culture programs a week, plus Sunday Gospel Reflections, plus all the on-demand stuff, it's too much. Back off and make some space. Okay? I know Father Joseph, again, my mentor, used to take a white sheet and throw it over his television at the beginning of Lent. It's a great thing. It's just you ever walk into your room, you just see it covered up. Yeah. And then I would suggest at the end of Lent to just go ahead and wrap that up and just throw it out the window. But that's up to you. I'll leave that for another time. And it's not just a matter of doing without guys. We must also fill that void. Silence as a positive space for thought. Yeah. So we're not just a matter of like becoming Buddhists, like emptying ourselves. No, we should be reflecting upon our life, meditating upon the meaning and purpose of our life, our vocation. What God is calling us to in our life, our relationships, our job, our family life. These are the things which we should be holding up that we go so fast. We never have a chance to really reflect on. Yeah. The unexamined life is not worth living. And during Lent, let us begin to examine our life once again. And then, of course, is some spiritual reading, the scriptures. This is a beautiful traditional book to read during this time, which none of you know about which is why the Institute exists, written by St. John of the Ladder or St. John Climacus, C-L-I-M-A-C-U-S, St. John Climacus, called The Ladder of Divine Ascent. Highly recommend it. Finally, let's talk about food for a moment. Look at that. Katie, we're almost out of time. I, I told you I was going to go like 35 minutes. Okay, well, anyways, food. Let's just let's just get it out there, guys. Enough with the minimalist snicker bar giving up approach. We did that in eighth grade. Not anymore. You're adults. Let's get serious about the fast. Yeah. We give up meat on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Well, yeah, you're supposed to be giving up meat every Friday. And the tradition is that we don't eat meat on any Wednesday or Friday of all of the of the year because we're Christians. Yes. So what's the difference between that and Lent? Well, you want to know what the tradition of the church is, both East and West, up to at least the 14th and 15th century. And that is Christians during Lent do not eat meat, period, done. Okay, but Father Hezekiah, I don't eat meat that much anyways. Well, do you know that the tradition of the church, both East and West, for at least 15th centuries, actually, I think it's a little bit more than that, is that we don't eat dairy during this time either. Eggs, milk, how's that? No milk in your coffee? Ooh. I set aside the liquor, the, the wine. Actually, the tradition set aside oil too. But I don't want to push you too far. I'm just telling you what the tradition is both East and West. This isn't because Father Hezekiah is some crazy Byzantine. I'm just telling you what Christians have done since the, since, since the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. Jesus didn't say, if you fast, he says, when you fast, when you fast. And then of course, limiting the amount of food we eat. It is customary not to eat at least until noon. 
limit ourselves maybe to one, maybe a little bit more than that a day. But that, but Father, but Father, my brothers and sisters, if we continue to live on the at least of, uh, of the faith, I hope you at least get to heaven. But I don't want you to at least. I want you to get to the higher reaches of paradise. Sleeping. We got to get it. We need to go to bed on time and we got to get out of bed on time. We got to start seeing the sun rise. Yes, because the sun, the rising of the sun is a revelation of the risen son of justice. And if you haven't been watching the sunrise, you're missing out. Go to bed on time and get up on time. Begin your day with prayer and end your day with prayer. And be careful of the devil of the noonday, of that sloth. And place that prayer there in the middle of the day when you're tempted. You're tempted by your hunger. Let that hunger well up in your soul for a communion, not with food, but with the Lord. I'll conclude with a quotation from Father Alexander Schmemann. He says, Lent is, as we have said at the very beginning, the recovery by man of his faith. It is also his recovery of life, of its divine meaning, of its sacred depth. It is by abstaining from food that we rediscover its sweetness and learn again how to receive it from God with joy and gratitude. It is by slowing down on music and entertainment, on conversation and superficial socializing, that we rediscover the ultimate value of human relationships, human work, human art. And we rediscover all this because, very simply, we rediscover God himself. Because we return to him and in him to all that which he, that which he gave us in his infinite love and mercy. And thus on the Easter night we sing today are all things filled with light. Heaven and earth and the places under the earth. All creation does celebrate the resurrection of Christ on whom it is founded. Of this expectation. Do not deprive us, O lover of mankind. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Wow, thank you so much, Father. I would be surprised if I don't speak on behalf of everyone here when I say I feel like my Lenten plan has a lot more of a sharp focus now. I feel like I actually know what I'm going to do, which is good good for two days before Lent starts. Father, are we still up for some questions? Sure. I'm happy to spend a few minutes with you guys. I'm sure there's a lot of questions about how to approach Lent, about some of the practicals I talked about. Okay. Father, we had a lot of questions coming in asking about your mention of Pelagianism. So here we have one that says, you mentioned the importance of avoiding Pelagianism and conforming to the fast. How do we sacrifice selflessly and without egoism while avoiding just following the rules of the fast without sincerity? Well, okay. I I, I don't know if I'm going to answer this the way the person is wanting, but I, I would just, I'd say it, it, it's not to say that uh, our efforts are of no use. By, by no means, but it's always to ensure that every effort is in communion with Christ it is a God centered effort. You know, there's a beautiful icon. Can you go get the icon of the resurrection off, off the wall there? Yeah. Sorry. My son's here and he's going to grab an icon. I, I love this icon because it, it really gives a, a good example of the spiritual life of, of all of us. 
that though we, we want so bad, right? We try so hard, but ultimately as men and women with a fallen human nature, oftentimes we fail. It is only the grace of God, which brings about healing in our life. So I would just say that it's, it's not the, the effort, which God, which is, which is bad, but always a desire to keep Christ in the center of that effort. Yeah. Here's the icon I'm going to show you. Okay. And I don't know if you can see it, but the hand of, this is Adam, right? The moment of the resurrection. And you'll notice the hand of Adam. You probably can't see it very well, but the hand of Adam is limp. It's Jesus grabbing hold of his arm, right? And I think that there's a great example. It's similar with the prodigal son. It says that the father, the prodigal son, went running to him. Yeah. And that's where we need to be in our Lenten journey, in our, in our spiritual efforts to, to ask the Lord to strengthen us. The church gives us is the wisdom of where we need, what we need to be doing and when we need to be doing it. But it's Christ who grants the strength to do that. Yeah. And I would also add to this that there, there's a tendency maybe among some to kind of invent all sorts of spiritual exercises. Yeah. Find all sorts of radical things I'm going to do during Lent to be, get there. Mm, right. You know what? The wisdom of the fathers gives us a pretty serious, but pretty clear direction because it's the wisdom of Christ. Yeah. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. He says, you're to be perfect. Like your heavenly fathers, your heavenly father is perfect. Yeah. You just read this. We just had this gospel, right? In the gospel of Matthew chapter five and six. Notice in Matthew chapter five, verse 45, you with me? Matthew chapter five, you with me? Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Chapter six, verse two. Thus, so in other words, you want to do this? Thus, give alms, verse five, when you pray, and verse 16, when you fast. Yeah? So there it is, my brothers and sisters. You love tradition. You love the fathers of the church. You want to get the goods. You don't go to make up spiritual exercises. They're right there. And the fast of the church is given to us. It's right there. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a question about what we're obliged to do and, and, and so forth, but it, maybe that helps. Uh, Jay, I see you're raising your hand. You can unmute yourself and ask your question. I've read uh, on fasting and feasting by uh, St. Basil the Great. Father John, our pastor, was talking about what you were saying earlier. Well, about uh, fasting from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, the first commandment given to the humanity. I was going to ask you, is there any kind of connection between what Jesus says about this kind goes out only by prayer and fasting? Is, that, is there some kind of connection between what Adam and Eve would have done if they would have prayed or asked God for help at the time when they were being tempted by Satan on the tree? And if they would have fasted from staying away by staying away of the fruit, is there some kind of connection between the Absolutely. new and the old covenant? So St. Ephraim says that, that if they had been obedient, 
that God would have given them access to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In other words, he would have opened up the oven. He would have given them the, the mitts, right? And said, here's son, here's how you take, how, here's how you take the hot cookie out of the oven, right? He would have given them everything they needed to receive because the trial, the knowledge of good and evil, this is called a Hebrew merism, M-E-R-I-S-M, merism, in which the two furthest points of a thing are, are used, okay, alpha and omega, right? The two furthest points to talk about everything in between. And the fathers of the church say the tree of knowledge of good and evil would have opened their eyes to all that God had planned for them. And what did he have planned for them was that which was planted in the, in the center of the garden, which was the tree of life from which they would eat and live forever. Yeah. So in obedience to the Lord, they would have received communion with God prayer. Right. And that's where our fasting leads us to is this intimate encounter with the Lord. And so, yeah, certainly Jay, Amen. I, I I certainly agree with that. Katie? Uh, Father, we have a question coming in from Karen, which I think is quite a good one. Since there is a negative connotation to the term obligation, why do we use the term for certain mass participation, such as holy days of obligation? Why can't it be holy day of fulfillment? <laughs> well, okay. Look, I'm not, I, I kind of, I was, you know, I tend to be a little bit negative on the obligation thing, but not because those things which the church obliges are not important. They are fundamentally important. But here's, here's the difference I think we need to understand as Catholics is that the church um, and, and please let me get through this whole statement before you turn off your ears, because I, I, you're going to first hear me in, in the negative. The church in the West, the Roman, the, the Roman people, the Roman mindset was always very clear and distinct and to the point. OK, Roman law is loved and honored the world over because they're the only ones that could actually say it the way it was and put a period on the end. The Byzantines forget about it. If you're attending to Byzantine liturgy around and around we go and where we'll end up. No one knows. Back and, yeah. But Roman liturgy is not like that at all. There's a beginning, there's an end. Boom, boom, boom. And we're done and, and so forth. Right. OK. And so so law in the West has always taken this approach and the church's law about obligation is just this is is a minimalist law and don't take that in a bad way it's a, it's a statement of reality you at least have to do this my brothers and sisters if you don't fast on on good friday well that's it we're going to wash our hands and be done with it we just sail off into non-christianity okay if you don't fast on good friday forget it okay so and, and notice notice what's always attached to these obligations the word mortal that means you're going to die, sucker, if you don't do at least this, right? It's the minimal. I think about the freeway, okay? The freeway has guardrails along the side of it. And the guardrails are there to tell you, you can't go any further because if you go over that, you're going to die. That's the, the minimalist law, right? You at least have to do this. You don't get to mass on Sunday by at least whatever it is, right? What is the current law? Of, nobody knows here because you're not, you don't live like that, right? You want to go to masses. You want to get there early. You want to stay late. You want to praise God and give thanks to him. We don't live on the edge of the freeway, but, but this is what many Catholics do. We, they do stand and then they bang their car up against the railing over and over and over and then boom, and all of a sudden they die. I remember when I was at college, these, these college kids on Ash Wednesday would stay up till midnight. They'd get the barbecues fired up. They'd be making their hamburger patties. They'd start cooking at about 11.45. So their hamburger would come off at 12.01. My brothers and sisters, that's not Christianity. That's Judaism. 
That's why the church is attacked by our evangelical brothers and sisters as being kind of Old Testament-y, old law. We didn't accept the freedom of Jesus. They're right that that law is not for you. It's about for the guy who's about to fall off the body of Christ. And that's why it looks like Judaism, because it's on the edge. Don't live there. Live in the center of the highway. That's where you want it. Your focus is when I'm telling my daughter to drive, I'm telling her, stay in the middle of the road. Not, I mean, not, you know, stay in the safe part of the lane. Don't go too far to the right or the left, right there. And that's where the, that's where the invitation comes in. That's where the fulfillment comes in. Yeah. You only have to fast on whatever the current rules are. This, but you know what the, you know what the monks are doing in the monastery? They're not doing that. The serious monastics aren't eating meat ever. So you get to join them during the Lenten journey. Yeah. So, so this, this is the invitation. It's an invitation to fulfillment. Yeah. Let me say one last thing, by the way, about the Easter vigil. Some of you, maybe, oh, Father, it's too, there's too many people there. It's too long and it's too late at night. What do you think would have happened if the holy women had thought that when they got up in the middle of the night, go to the tomb of Jesus? There's not too many people there because you should be in the front row. You don't even know how many people are there because you're in the front row. Why are you in the front row? Because you're the first person to get there. Why are you the first person to get there? Because you beat the priest. You should beat the priest to Easter mass. Wait for him to unlock the door and you're the first one in. In the center of the road, not the rail. Yeah. Okay, Katie. Okay, I think for your final question, I think someone in the chat said there's a lot of high energy coming off of the screen. <laughs> Andrew, I see you've had your hand raised for a while. Why don't you go ahead and unmute? Father, I just, I'm a little bit surprised where like in the Latin rite, like you mentioned, a very minimalist type of fasting and the Byzantine have more a you know, the, the full 40 days, no, you know, me, no dairy products, no, et cetera. Why doesn't the Latin write it, not enforce it, but try to bring it back to the people and, you know, say, let's, let's bring back the tradition. And I'm just going to put a big old mirror up right now and say, and it's not to you, but to everybody in the group to say, it's not some Bishop's job. Well, maybe it is his job, but whatever. I'm not going to live. I'm not going to let my spiritual do- life die because some because some guy didn't tell me what to do. I mean, I'm telling you what to do. So I guess you do it. But but uh, but no, no, seriously, like you know, we can hide behind, oh, the church should have done been more traditional. Then you be the most diehard traditionalist you can be. Yeah, you want to receive the goods from the apostles, receive them. And don't blame somebody else for not enforcing it in your life. It's an invitation to something greater. Okay. So I, sometimes I do wish Andrew that you know, the bishops would speak up a little bit more on some of these topics and things like that, but I, why well, I'm not a bishop, so I don't know. Let them, God bless them. God bless whoever. But you know, right now I got to take care of this situation right here. And father has Caius's house and in this church and in this community that's here, the Institute and get ourselves back in touch with the goods that, that the church has, has given to us over 2000 years. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. 
Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers and family members. To learn more, get involved and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.